gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Fundamism Podcast. I'm your host, Paul J. Long, coming to you live on Facebook if, uh, if you've had the luxury to, uh, to tune in. If not, it's okay. We're on all the usual platforms, iTunes, Spotify. We'll be dropping this episode in a couple of weeks, so feel free to tune in. Listen, uh, shout out to our sponsor, Charlie Hustle. If you know nothing of Charlie Hustle, go to charliehustle.com to learn more. They've been with us from the jump. Uh, but if you want to learn more about farm animals, uh, fun, uh, attorney work, uh, being a serial entrepreneur, uh, getting kidnapped, then this episode is for you because we have the luxury of uh, a dear, dear friend of mine, Alistair on Ling Swan. What's good, Alistair? Hey, Paul. First, I want to thank you for having me. I mean, I love, I've listened to some of your other podcasts and you are a brilliant host. And that's the only reason why I agreed to come on. <laughs> well, so. I'm in good company because you're about one of the smartest dudes I've ever met, which we'll get into. But before we do, Alistair, what do you do for fun? Uh, God, that's a good question. I think um, recently, um, you know, it, it, in the middle of the quarantine, and I get a lot of these, um, you know, how to stay healthy from home, like, you know, the five-minute hit workout. I guess what a lot of these health providers are trying to do is trying to get you healthy without having to have a gym. So, um, you know, they, they try to make it without equipment, so you could use just your body weight. They try to make it easy and convenient with very few minutes. So I decided to go the opposite direction of that. I made, I picked a, an activity that was very complex, super hard, and really hard to do. So what I do for fun, Paul, is I, you know, I live on this new farm, and um, we've got a lot of fallen trees. So I, when trees fell, I had them cut in two to three foot sections, and I have stumps all over my property. And I, I just chopped wood uh, pretty much every day for like half an hour a day. <laughs> You're like, so basically, you need, you, need, you need to have lots of stumps of wood. You need to have them all. And you need to have like a farm where you can chop wood. So it's like the most inconvenient workout. But I think about making, making it into a plan I could sell, right? Like the 30 minute, you know, wood chopping workout. You think that'd sell? <laughs> Listen, if you're selling it, I have the utmost faith that it would because you could turn just about anything into gold, uh, which is one of the reasons why I wanted you on the podcast, Alistair. So we lost you for a brief minute, but what we heard you say is that a lot of folks are doing these online workouts at home you decide to go on the opposite of the spectrum and make the hardest possible workout. Uh, you're, you're literally Rocky. You're swinging, you're swinging the ax. You're cutting up <laughs> stumps. <laughs> so Alistair, uh, you know, you mentioned, do you think it would sell? And, uh, you called me the other day. We hadn't talked in over a year and, uh, it just reiterated to me and reinforced what a great friend you are and support mechanism for many uh, in their lives. You, you basically extended an olive branch and you said, you know, I'm thinking of you. And if you need anything at all, please let me know. And you went on to be very specific. You said, Paul, you know, you, your gift, your skill set, uh, what you've been blessed with is if somebody needs a smile, you have the ability to give it. You have the ability to generate it for them. You said, I don't have that, Paul, which I would argue you do. But you said, I have the ability to make money. Uh, I've always been good at making money. And uh, that's my skill set. Talk to us a little bit about uh, that journey. How did you come to this epiphany that you had the ability to make money? And what does that skill set entail? 
<laughs> well, it started when I was really young. I think in high school, I went away to a boarding school, and every uh, in every dormitory in my boarding school, there's a thing called a grill where they would sell chips, candy bars, and sodas. And every year, the people that ran the grill would lose money. So most of my classmates, my uh, primogenitors, the, the classmates before me, would use the grill as a clubhouse where they would just hang out and then they would eat and drink for free. Uh, and that's why they lost money because they were eating away all their profits. I, I decided to go a different route. I just decided, look, we need operations. We got to do inventory and we would maintain a strict budget. And, uh, and I turned that into like one of the most successful grills in the history of the, the high school. And I believe to the state, it still has numbers that are record setting because we just made so much money. And then from there, I went um, in college. I, you know, I went to school in a college that everyone hated the beds because they were just beds. But, you know, so what kids would typically do is they would get rid of the frames and they would put their mattresses on the floor so that they could lean it up and make more of a living room. So I decided, oh, you know, there's this Japanese thing called a futon that none, none of the kids in my college had ever heard of. So I just started becoming a distributor for a local futon shop um, and sold so many futons and made money doing that. And then I realized, well, you know, I, I, I just have this crazy ability to make money. Goodness gracious. So fast forward uh, to a... A lengthy career. Uh, you're still a very young gentleman, but you have dabbled in just about everything known to mankind. You and I connected uh, as uh, it, as uh, trade show carnival barkers. Essentially, uh, we were representing uh, specific brands and, and trying to draw uh, potential customers in to educate them on whatever the brand's uh, service or value offering was. And I was just enamored with you the moment that we that we got the opportunity to meet. And so, you know, I asked you, what do you do for a living? Which is a terrible question. Uh, but, you know, at the time, you were an attorney and still are. You're the founder of a company called Green Soul Shoes, uh, S-O-U-L. Uh, you uh, are now uh, mediating oil deals. Uh, what the hell do you do? What are you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I think my tag would probably be serial entrepreneur. Yes. Typically in the past, I would, I would uh, get a good idea, start a company, create operations, and then sell, start selling the product. And then I would sell the company. Um, and, you know, I did that for maybe decades. Um, and then, you know, but I felt it was feast or famine. You know, while I was operating, reinvest money into the company. And then eventually when I would sell the company, I would have all this money. And then I would squirrel it away into all my savings accounts. And then I realized that I wasn't using my money that I just earned. So uh, it, it's a bit of a white man's problem, but I had money, but I wasn't, I was, I felt like the poorest millionaire in the world. So I, <laughs> so I ended up in the last year and a half, I decided to change my, my specialty. And, and I wanted to generate, uh, I wanted to become an income millionaire, not just an asset millionaire. Mm. So I, I just started asking my friends and family what, the, the most lucrative areas of business or what they knew of uh, was. Uh, and then through LinkedIn, I had a, a friend of a friend of mine tell me that um, he thinks f fuel and diamonds and precious gems were, was very lucrative. So then I, um, I, I circled back to that person. I was like, do you know anyone in that industry? And I asked everyone in my LinkedIn contacts if they knew anyone in that industry. And I got, I, I met through this, one of my friend's friends, a broker in the fuel industry. And then I just called him up out of the blue and just asked him what he did for a living. 
And um, as it turns out, he had uh, he was a broker for fuel. So I was just talking to this broker and I just found what his pressure was. And um, as it turns out, like he had so many holes in his in his business model. So I thought as an attorney, uh, I just sort of uh, glommed onto this guy to help him um, fix his business. So I, I reduced his risk, increased his revenues. And now as a result, I'm like a player in all of these different elements of the fuel transaction. Goodness. You've always been a player, Alastair. And- <laughs> I want to, so I want to talk a lot about uh, your entrepreneurial spirit and specifically maybe some tactical things that folks listening uh, could potentially take and grow from as a result of some of these experiences that you're, that you're referencing. But before we do that, um, you know, we were talking on the phone the other day and I was thinking about why haven't I had you as a guest on the Fundamism podcast? We're talking about all of these things that you and I are talking through right now. And I forgot one of the most fascinating things about you was the time that you went to the Philippines on a business trip. And uh, this is a, a, a pretty infamous story that was featured uh, on a cable network. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your business trip to the Philippines, Alistair. So at the time, I was building an online remittance system for Filipinos that were working abroad. And, um, and basically, it was a system, it was like an online Western Union, um, where people, because Philippines sends out a million workers a month, as contract workers or as overseas workers. And these workers have no way to get their money back to the Philippines, which by the way, supports the gross domestic product of the Philippines. So I built a system and that required me to be a month in New York and a month in, the, in Manila, month in New York. Every other month I was spending a month in Manila. Uh, and one, one time, I, you know, my parents were born and raised in Manila, but they hadn't been back in many years. So I thought, you know, mom, dad, why don't you just visit, you know, come with me to a trip, you know, and they had reservations because it's very hot and the culture is very different. But I convinced them to come and they stayed in a five-star hotel that I put them up in. And typically when I go, I stay with my cousin in his house. Um, and he's very wealthy. And so it's very comfortable. He's got all these servants and it's just a different life. But, uh, but this time for my parents, I put them up in a five-star hotel. And one day I was uh, leaving a, a, the five-star hotel and I got picked up by this taxi. And interestingly, the, the, the Filipinos, this five-star hotel, you know, they, they take security pretty seriously. And so they, they write down the name of the taxi that you got in and they give you the receipt. They don't even keep a copy of it. So had they ever kept a copy, they would have known which taxi picked me up. And I wouldn't have been like, I would have been kidnapped, but it would have been a really short stay because... Um, because they would have had the receipt of the last taxi I got in. But in fact, I had the only copy of the receipt. And the reason they do that is in case you lose something in the taxi or if in case that taxi does something or says something or doesn't drive you properly, you have a copy of the taxi that you were in. Hmm. So I get why they do that. But sure. um, yeah, so, so then I was- So uh, taxi cab. So what happens in the taxi? So I, you know, like unlike most, most Filipinos, they get in the front seat of the taxi. When you're in New York and in the States, you get in the back seat. And because I'm from the States, he had a partition in the, between the front seat and the back seat, which is very uncharacteristic of a Filipino taxi. But I thought, well, that may mean he want me to get in the back. So I got in the back seat. Um, the reason he, he, he had that, as you'll learn, is, well, when I was, I was on a conference call on the way to a store that I wanted to visit, and I just started getting really groggy, which is very uncharacteristic for me because I sleep very little. And during the day, I don't nap. But in, it was like noon or one o'clock in the afternoon, and I just started getting really groggy. So much so that in the middle of the conference call, I said, guys, I'm getting really tired. I just need to go. And everyone was surprised because they all knew me on the call. And they were like, 
that is weird. But then I hung up and then I fell asleep. And as it turns out, the taxi driver had um, chloroform gas that he was pumping into the the, compart- the backseat compartment, which got me really groggy and I just fell asleep. And when I woke up, I had a bag over my head and I was in handcuffs. Whoa. So, jeez. Yeah. So, my goodness, so, so many things to unpack here. Obviously, the fact that you don't sleep or nap uh, is a bigger issue that we should probably talk about sometime. But <laughs> right. now. Um, Probably has aided in you being very successful in life, though. That said, you don't miss out on many deals or many details. So you wake up, you got a bag over your head. What's going through your head? Like, what do you recall from that moment? Well, I just I realized that I was in handcuffs and they were on really tight. And I just, I just, all I could remember thinking was, I need to, you know, and I was feeling really claustrophobic. Not, I don't, I'm not claustrophobic, but with this bag over my head and coming off of chloroform, what typically happens is you start. Uh, puking out the toxins, right? So I, I just felt like I needed to throw up. So I just said, look, I, my handcuffs are really tight and I need a bucket. And I guess the guy was experienced. So he took off the bag of my head and he loosened my handcuffs and I just started puking in a bucket. Mm. And then I realized, you know, all throughout this time, I'm thinking, I can't be here. I've got a party to go to tonight. <laughs> like, like the craziest stuff goes through your head. Like, wait, what, what am I doing here? I got I got I got to run that errand to the store and I got a party. A big party to go to tonight, you know. So before you before you came on the show, uh, Molly Rose texted me, uh, as did Paul Billings, mutual friends of ours, both of which said they they couldn't wait to hear uh, us, you know, yuck it up on the podcast. And I asked Molly Rose, "Have you ever heard Alistair's story about getting kidnapped?" Kidnapped, and she goes, "Yes, I have. I heard it over dinner. Um, so much of that seems so unbelievable." And I said. It's not just that though. Alistair lives such a life that everything that you do and everything that you say seems so far-fetched and to, the, <laughs> to the normal human being. I would never find myself in 90% of the shenanigans you found yourself in, but yet you are, you're literally the most uh, fascinating man in the world. So, ah, uh, so, uh, so, I, so I say that because uh, for those of you that don't know uh, Alistair, as you're tuning in or listening, and when he says, uh, I don't get worked up about much, or uh, I'm not the type of person uh, that would get ra- frazzled or, or you know, discombobulated, he means it. Like, I- I've never heard this gentleman raise his voice. Uh, I've heard a story of him raising his voice, which I want to get into. Uh, but you don't seem like the type of guy that much uh, gets to you. So, Fast forward, uh, you you realize now that you've been kidnapped. What happens next? Well, so another interesting thing is, uh, and and this a lot of it, you know. I, I by the way, I, this is a time for a plug. I read your book, and after <laughs> and you know what? After and this is this is what I love about you, Paul. After I told you I got your book, you were like, "Yeah, but did you get the Audible?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Now that was a shameless plug." But by the way, Paul's fundamentalism book. Uh, you know, he's got an audible and it was great. And I listened to it and, um, and I, I, there's lots that I resonate with in that book. Um, and, you know, going back to the kidnapping, you know, I, uh, there's something in your book that I'll, that I, I, that you describe in different words that has always resonated with me. It's the woe is me and the don't play the victim. Yeah. Like I, like I have always felt that, but never, uh, expressed it in the way that you had which is why I loved your book because there were lots of tenets in your book that I loved that I believe in, but are just said in a different way and described in a different way. I I've never seen myself as a victim. And I learned that at a fairly young age that you could 
decide, you know, your, you, so you have no control over events, right? But right. you do have control over your reaction to the events, the emotion of your events. And that's what I think you're trying to say in that, in that part of your, of your book. And so because of this, like I knew that I'd been kidnapped, but I was not responsible for it. And there was nothing I could do about it. So I, I just took it as a thing that was happening and I could, could only control my reaction to it. So interestingly with this kidnapper, I never expressed any sorrow or disappointment or, and I never cried, which really got this guy a little bit confused because he kidnapped six people before me and every one of them pled for their lives. They all cried and pled for their lives and I didn't. So he found that really odd. Uh, so he thought that he, I wasn't scared. So he was like, look, you're a big guy. And he was, he was taller than me, but slighter. And he said, you know, you may not be scared of me, but I've, I've kidnapped bigger guys than you. And he said, look in the closet. There's a guy that the last victim I kidnapped, you know, try on his jacket. And the guy must have been 6'6 six, six, and must have weighed like three or 400 pounds because his jacket like, was six inches beyond my arms. And I'm not a small guy. Right. Um, and so he actually went upstairs as I was trying on the coat and he brought down a rifle. And he put a popsicle stick in my mouth and he just wanted to demonstrate that he had like the ability to, you know, he had arms, right? So he put the popsicle stick into my mouth and then he, he made me like turn my head and he shot the popsicle stick out of his mouth with what looked like to be a 22 caliber rifle, what? which, yeah, but you know, he was not far away from me. He was like six feet away. And even if he missed the popsicle stick, he wasn't going to shoot me. Right. Okay. Right? And that was not his goal, but he did hit the popsicle stick out of my mouth and he built this room in his house specifically for kidnapping. So it was had steel walls and it had two feet of concrete. And the bullet hit the popsicle stick, hit the concrete wall, and a piece of the concrete wall hit my arm and it ricocheted. And to this day, I have a scar, which I could probably show you, but it may not appear. But, but in any event, um, they ricocheted off my arm and it made a tiny, like a quarter of an inch cut, like a nick on my arm. And I remember looking at my arm, looking at him, looking at my arm, looking at him, saying, you fucker, you just shot me. <laughs> you fucker, you shot me. And this guy was shocked. He dropped the gun, ran upstairs, came back, thought better of it, grabbed the gun, ran back upstairs, came on down with a full-on medic kit. It was the size of a suitcase. He put iodine, bacitracin, and he bandaged my arm up like it was fucking broken. Mm. And, and really what happened was is his job is to keep me safe as right. a kidnapper. He's, his job, and, and I had a proof of life call every night with my brother. And he's like, please, he pled with me, please don't tell your brother that I shot you. <laughs> so the dynamic quickly changed, you know, like, whereas, you know, and whereas I realized that, you know, commonly in my position, um, you know, the, the captors identify, the, the victims identify with the captors, mm. prisoners, and that's called Stockholm syndrome. Yes. In fact, my brother, on one of his proof of life call actually asked me, Hey, Alistair, is it like your trip? He would ask me, is it like BJJ MMA? Because he knows that I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu MMA training. He would use these code words that only he and I would understand. And he was like, so is it like our trip to uh, Sweden? And I was thinking, I, Aaron's never been to Sweden. I've never been to Sweden. I know that his girlfriend is Swedish, but that I don't know what he's trying to say to me. Then I realized, oh, the capital of Sweden is Stockholm. So what he's asking me is, if I, am, am I, do I have, in my own analysis, am I identifying with him? As a cap, as a captor, and then I remembered on the next call I said, "Aaron, no, remember that trip to Sweden? It's like the round trip version." So every night I would, after dinner on my proof of life call, this this captor would sit down with me for an hour or two every night 
And we would just talk about stuff like the economy. We talk about the traffic patterns in the Philippines. We talk about sanitation issues in the Philippines. And so I was getting to him to identify me as a victim, as, a, as opposed to me, me identifying with him as a captor. So and that was important. Before, before we go on with the story, uh, kind of just to revisit a couple points that you made. So you talked about not crying, not pleading for your, for your life. Um, historically, how have you dealt with your emotions? Are you an emotional guy? Do you get caught up in your feelings? I mean, obviously, this is an extreme getting kidnapped to where whoever you think you are, you're truly being tested. But just historically, what's your demeanor like emotionally? So emotional, so people say like, I think um, people close to me would say that I'm very stoic. Okay. But, that, but stoic doesn't necessarily mean lack of emotions. It means focusing, to me, it means focusing your emotions on the most important things. Like events, I'm never emotional about. I learned that at a young age to not become emotional about events. But, but the response to the events and how you're going to act and what you want to do in life, these things I'm, and, and people, right, are extremely, you know, I'm extremely emotional about. Like, I think I feel so deeply and strongly for people around me, friends and family, and about things that I want to do and why I'm doing them. Those are the reasons where I, I use emotions. But events, they, they, I can take them or leave them. Like, I know good things will happen to me. Bad things will happen to me. You know, I have no control over them. And I just take them as they come. But I do find that when I'm in critical situations, that's when my mind is the clearest. Like I've bungee jumped off the, the Manhattan Bridge three or four times. I ride motorcycles. I, I you know, I, I've been on speedboats. You know, I've done, really, you know, adventurous activities. And when I'm at that moment of, oh my God, I could die or live. Like that's when I, I find my mind is the clearest. That I don't know how, to, how that's, <laughs> how to train that or how to be like that, but, but I, I mean, I think it's an eight, right? I mean, uh, what we're talking about really. So going back to the the book, this concept of fun is not just a word; it's an acronym, of course. Uh, and for those of you that are tuning in for the first time to hear Alistair's story or aren't familiar with the fun acronym, the F is your foundation, the the personal foundation, everything that makes you you. And so Alistair's talking about his mindset and and never falling. Uh, victim to what's going on or feeling woe is me and being in control of his outcomes and uh, being, being more stoic than, uh, than most. And, but also uh, reveling in relationships and, and love and all the things close to him. This is all his personal foundation. Um, but moving on to the you in fun, which is understanding others' perspectives, Alistair, this is where I find this story is fascinating. You and I talked on the phone uh, several weeks ago as referenced before and uh, I had this, 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 cli- this client, quote unquote client, reach out for me for a potential gig in Hong Kong. And it was a scam. But as I'm talking through some of these things, uh, I-, I said, you know, they're trying to get me for money. They're trying to kidnap me or they're trying to, and I don't remember the third thing. And you said, Paul, uh, take it from somebody that could speak from experience as a kidnapping <laughs> victim. Uh, it's not a kidnapper or in their best interest to, uh, to have you pay up front for the kidnap victim. So uh, my point is this, you get into this relationship with this kidnapper. Like you're so, you're so sound in mind and so present uh, of your personal foundation of what makes you tick that you start to ask questions and understand this gentleman's perspective and understand what makes him tick. 
but also understanding your brother and uh, his psyche and how you guys communicate, because that's big and understanding others' perspectives as well. So what happens over time is you, you and your brother, uh, and forgive my ignorance, what's your brother's name? Aaron. Aaron. So you and your brother, you have a proof of life call every single day. And over the course of, of this, this kidnapping experience, uh, you're communicating in code to where Aaron starts to identify or they start to triangulate uh, some of the whereabouts of where you could potentially be. So talk to us about that. Like, what was that experience like? How did you even have the presence of mind to be able to communicate in that manner? Well, you know, my brother and I, you know, we've known each other for all of my, all of my life, right? So that, you know, we communicate in a way that only brothers can communicate. And, and actually, my proof of life calls were to other people as well. I was allowed to contact my mom and my, my girlfriend at the time, Iris, who I eventually married. Um, you know, so I was allowed a proof of life call. And I would, for each of them, I would communicate in different ways, right? Like I would, you know, ultimately, it was Iris that um, sort of resolved this, this kidnapping, um, you know, in more than one way. And, and eventually, you know, I would, I would tell her, for example, so, th- you know, the entire way that I'm playing this kidnapper is, I don't know why you kidnapped me, but I don't have any money. Now, my bank accounts, that wasn't necessarily true. So I said to Iris, Iris, my bank accounts are on my desk. She was in New York. I was like, the bank accounts are on my desk. You know Photoshop. You know what to do. So I, I was telling her, PDF it, but you know what to do. You know Photoshop, which is an editing program. Where right. You can edit PDF. So I was telling her, zero out my accounts and, and then send this to the kidnapper. So that's essentially what she did. Like she knew exactly. So it was just about levels of communication with people that you just have relationships with. Hmm. And Aaron and I would do this all the time. He would say, you know, Al, it's like the study room where we would, you know, where we would, where we were kids. And to me, the study room was our game room. People call it a study room. That's where we kept all of our games. And what he was telling me was, this is a game and we need to play this game like the game of life, but we need to play it better than anyone or any time we've ever played a game before. Mm-hmm. And so he was, and then at that time, slowly, all the people in my life were slowly getting, um, they were away. Iris was no longer allowed to call me. I was no longer allowed to call Iris. Apparently the FBI took away her phone. Um, and then, um, and then my mom, apparently we went back to New York because this was too harrowing for her. My dad was in the hospital because he had heart disease, but all this I knew wasn't really happening. Like my brother was telling me it's a game. And, and what they were trying to do is they were trying to get my proof of life calls to just go to my brother where they were recording all the calls. They were transcribing them and they, they were, con- you know, connecting with the ESN numbers of the mobile call that was outgoing. So they had possibilities of being able to rescue me. And I, and I knew that even though he's telling me this, I know because of the study room reference that it's all just a huge game that we're just playing um, and that we just need to play this to the best of our ability. Guys, ladies and gentlemen, to revisit. So you have a proof of life call every single day and it's going to, to everybody. We got Iris, you got your mom, you got your brother, whoever. And ultimately you and your brother start speaking in a code uh, that's so specific and he references this study room, which is really just where you guys used to play, that all of a sudden you realize that this is a game and everything that he's telling you about Iris and the FBI or your mother being, you know, going back to uh, the States or your, or your father being sick, you realize that it's all false. And you guys are just, you're, you're strategically trying to get all the calls routed to Aaron. This is fascinating, mainly uh, for, for the most part, uh, based on the intelligent nature of this strategy, because I wouldn't have 
this level of intelligence to be able to do that, Alistair, as you well know in me. That's why I'm a speaker. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> um, but uh, what I find fascinating is one of my favorite fundamentals. Uh, it, it, they're in the book. They're, you know, there's millions of them out there. Whatever you do for fun is a fundamental of a fun and optimistic lifestyle, but uh, the, the tenets of fundamentalism. But one of my favorites is listening to understand, right? Listening with intent. And so how often do we talk to our loved ones every single day? And we're not really listening to, to what they're saying. We're just listening to respond, right? We're nodding our head. We're going on cruise control. This situation, this experience forced you to be so present, so, uh, so in the moment that you had to listen to understand. And likewise with Aaron, because what you were really playing out is a game plan or next steps, the in and fun for your ultimate either escape or uh, rescue. So how did it happen? The, 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 end, the exit, like how did I get out? Yeah, what was the end so, game? So basically, the, the, I mean, it was, I was kidnapped for 22 days. So that's a long time. But um, you know, there, was a, there was an attempted rescue in the middle of my kidnapping, which failed. Um, ultimately, the, the the United States forces, I guess, uh, the FBI, the CIA, all the U.S. State Department, they came down quite hard on the Filipinos because they 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 sort of botched this rescue, even though it was not their fault. Like they they used equipment from the Australian embassy that was supposed to triangulate the cell phone signal, but they lacked a component that that would zero it in to the last hundred meters. So in the, uh, the 100 meters of the Philippines could mean a population of like half a million people because they live on top of one another. So, um, so they, and then, so they, there was a bit of pressure on the Filipinos to, to effect an, a successful rescue. Iris, the first thing she did to the, was send the first email that we got from the kidnapper was to Iris um, and to my tech team in New York. And now I'm running a tech company. The first thing they did was reverse engineer the IP address. And they, they knew it came to one of three Filipino servers. So they gave that information to the FBI. The FBI did a, a, a FOIA request. And they once it left the US borders, though, they had no ability to, to, um, to verify the servers. So they dropped that, that lead. But the Filipinos picked up on all the lost leads. And uh, they picked up on Iris's determination that came from one of three ISPs. They went and they followed up on these ISPs in the Philippines. And in the Philippines, it's very different than the United States, where if a, if a policeman comes to uh, a U.S. company and says, we'd like information on this ISP IP address, what's your response? Where's your warrant, right? Mm -hmm. What are you doing here? You know, get off my property. But the Filipinos, they, they take authority very differently. And they say, they say oh, we, we have the, the IP address. Here's all the communications that have ever come out of that IP address. Here's everything that they've ever communicated. Here's every email they've ever sent. Um, and they sent that to the authorities, and the authorities knew they had the kidnapper because they verified his address. And they, of course, they, the ISP indicated where the address was, the holder of that account. Then the Filipinos just staked out that that um, that address, and they they picked him up. And at trial, <coughs> they they said they showed him a photograph of me, and they said, "Do you know where this guy is?" And the guy said, "Yeah, he's in my house." Now that's what happened at trial. That's what the PACER, the, the, the SWAT version of the Philippines, said uh, at trial. Now, after that testimony, I went back to the guy and said, is that really what happened? The guy gave me up as easily as that? As a photograph at a traffic stop? 
And he said, no, 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 no. So this isn't on the, the Discover special, but the, the really interesting stuff is happening beside, behind the scenes. And he's like, no, no, no. We, you know, just as a lead in, he said, um, you know, we took him back to the station. He denied never knowing you. And we have six levels of interrogation. <laughs> and I'll do that with air quotes uh, to get people to talk. And, um, and then he eventually gave you up. <laughs> and I was like, what? what? What level did he make it to? What's level six? What's level six? <laughs> so, so in the, so just to take a step back, um, in the, in the botched rescue, forgive my ignorance. Uh, I heard this story years ago. What, didn't you hear uh, the, the presence or something like that of uh, the police force or, or maybe during your actual rescue? I thought I recall you hearing things were going on and you were thinking that you were being rescued, but you weren't. Oh, yeah. That, that was the day of my rescue. So the, the botch rescue, the police, they, they raided a home. It was not the right house. And then they told everyone around them that they were trying to find carjackers, which is a, a popular crime in Southeast Asia. So they, they were looking for carjackers because apparently the guy said, if you ever call the authorities to my brother, if you ever call the, contact the authorities, I'm going to kill your brother. Oh. So that apparently that night, I remember that night because that night um, the proof of life call happened an hour. It was typically at seven o'clock in the evening. And that night it was around nine o'clock for no reason, except for my dinner was later and maybe the, you know, the kidnapper was, yeah, had something to do. <laughs> I don't know. He was busy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but my proof of life call was McDonald's. That. Yeah. <laughs> so that proof of life call was later. And my brother actually, when I picked up the phone, he was like, oh my God, Al, I'm so glad to hear your voice. Now this is my brother and I'm speaking to him every night. Generally, when I'm, when we were living in the same state, we didn't speak once a month. Right. So now I'm speaking to him every night. And, and he's like, so glad to hear your voice. Like I just spoke to you yesterday. But in his head, he thought he killed me because he thought that maybe they did the raids and they were close and that the guy heard about the raids and then he ended up killing me. And that's why I wasn't calling. So, But, but the night of my, ra- my rescue, um, the day of my rescue, I heard banging at doors above me and it sounded like gunshots. And really it was these battering rams knocking down every door in the house. And they, un- they broke down closet doors, kitchen doors, room doors, and it was happening above me. And I heard these noises and then eventually it was coming closer and closer. So I heard them and I thought it was maybe like um, a gang war or it could have been one kidnapping gang trying to steal me from another kidnapping gang. I had no idea. So I, I created like a barricade with my bed between the door and my bed. And, um, and then the door broke down and I saw this guy in full SWAT regalia, look to the left and right and then jump on me and yell clear. And then that happened like with five or six guys all jumping on top of me, big pile on top of me, yelling clear. I guess they're, I was the asset, so they were trying to protect me from any potential harm. Wow. And then that, that was my rescue. So, so the, guy that, the guy that rescued me was the guy that testified. His name is Gilar. And he looked at me. He was like an inch away from my face because there were five guys on top of him. And he said, are you Alistair Olingswan? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and he goes, am I glad to see you? <laughs> and I said, I'm glad to see you, but you got to get off me. <laughs> I can't fucking breathe. <laughs> so, uh, oh my gosh. So as you're, as you're being rescued, so first of all, was there ever a moment where you thought to yourself, my goodness, I might not make it? No, honestly. Um, and that, that may be my optimistic nature or 
Uh, and that I learned at a young age too. I mean, we could go over stories about where I learned to be optimistic and where I learned to be forward thinking, but um, that's always been my nature. I've always been an optimist. Like I can be pessimistically hopeful or optimistically doubtful, but um, but I always try to maintain this level of optimism. So throughout the entire experience, I could never say that um, that I wasn't going to come out alive. I did think at one point um, that that perhaps um, I, w- I may lose an ear or a finger, but um, but no time did I think I wasn't going to survive the um, the kidnapping. But what's an ear or a finger, right? I mean, you don't you don't want to hear what I have to say anyway, so you would have been fine. Uh, so talk to me about the name of the Discover special, the the kidnap and rescue. Your title uh, was the taxi cab killer, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Which yeah. insinuates that he didn't just kidnap his victims, that maybe, just maybe somebody didn't make it. Yeah, the, the guy he kidnapped before me, the very big guy, uh, he apparently was a local Filipino that was coming. So this guy's MO was picking people up at this five-star um, hotel and then kidnapping them. And as it turns out, he didn't have a kidnapping group. He was a one, one-stop shop kidnapper. He was the kidnapper, the negotiator, the handler. He did it all himself. And at his trial, he fired his attorney and he acted as his own attorney. So he was a true one-stop shop kidnapper. He, did, he even did his own defense. <laughs> the guy, yeah, the, it, was, it was a bit idiotic to do that, but he did end up doing that. And um, uh, yeah, so the guy he kidnapped before me was a big guy and the, the ransom was $6,000. and the family 60. 6000 So it was very, very low, which is a lot of money in the Philippines. Sure, of course. But but nevertheless, the family paid the six thousand, and then while being released, uh, so the entire time the handler, the kidnapper, he wore a mask on his head. It was um it was like a sock mask, with, as if you peeled off the skin of your face. So you saw these muscle striations, yeah. and it was red. So it looked a bit scary, but you know I, I got to know the guy, so the mask no longer scared me. But I knew so long as I didn't see his face that I would be safe. But when the ki- kidnapper apparently released the son. He pulled off the mask, and and then the guy, the kid, the, the kidnapper, stabbed the son, oh and then rather God. than release him, he killed him, and then he, and then, and I learned this from CIA operatives. He chopped up the body and he put it in the sewers in the Philippines. Oh my goodness! So, so that's why I called the taxi cab killer because he did kill one of his victims. So of course you didn't know any of this, uh, and even well, well after you were released. Um, the day that you actually got out, the day that you saw your family for the first time, the day that you got to experience freedom uh, after 22 days, what do you recall from that day? So I was a bit of a, a it was a bit of a dog and pony show. The, the Filipino president at the time, kidnapping for ransom was, it's a crime that carries a death penalty in the Philippines. And the reason why it carries such a harsh penalty is because it happens more and more frequently. So they, need, they wanted to, to, to deter it so they carried this um, death penalty. So the, the Filipino president at the time wanted to meet me. And she, of course, was taking credit for the rescue. So I remembered I, I got whisked away. I, I got brought to the safe house where my family was. Uh, and then immediately there, I didn't have any time to change or shower. So I immediately got whisked away to the presidential palace where I met the president and all this media was there. And it was just like this, you know, unbelievable. Like I'm in a room for 22 days alone to this like unbelievable, like everyone wants to meet me. And, uh, you know, it's just like, you know, this 
coming out party, you know, and it was it was a bit surreal, but um, nevertheless, really nice to to see people. Uh, so as, a, as an aside, the embassy threw a, a welcome home party for me. And at that party was invited only those people that had any say or touch in my case. Mm. And I swear, Paul, there were at least a thousand people at this party. What? Everyone what? knew who I was. They knew my life story. They knew everything about me, but I had no idea who they were. So it was, it was sort of like being like you, because you're like a famous speaker, right? It was like going to a place and like people saying, Paul, I love you. And you're like, yes, thank you. Who are you? <laughs> so I felt like I was living the life of Paul Long for a moment. <laughs> Me and my 3,000 Instagram followers. Uh, yeah. So I know that you're a very introspective gentleman. Uh, I mentioned earlier that you're one of the smartest individuals that I've ever had the opportunity to meet. Uh, even, even one of your emails, uh, is something to the extent of me so brilliant, uh, which I give you a hard time because, uh, mine's me so humble. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I know that you're a very introspective gentleman. You've taken a lot of, uh, a lot of courses. You've read a lot of books. You've seen a lot of speakers, uh, to help improve yourself. In retrospect, looking back at this moment, such a significant moment in your life that not a lot of people will ever experience, what was your biggest takeaway? What did you learn from all of it? Uh, from the, the the conferences I go to, the seminars? Or- oh, I'm sorry, the, kid, the kidnapping experience. Oh, the kid- yeah. So the, the biggest takeaway from the kidnapping is, um, like, um, you know, I've always been good at making money, as I said, but money comes and goes. Money is not important. Like the thing, what really, uh, what I distill from the kidnapping is the most important thing in life are your your family and your friends and the experiences that you can share with them. I mean, that's like money comes and goes, you can make it, you can, it's like air, you know, it's like air and water. For me, I can just take as much air or as much water as I want, but it's not going to make any difference. Mm. What, what is important are your relationships with your friends and family. And, and because I was kept away from them for 22 days, you know, against my will, it just became even more important. And I just sort of saw, you know, what, you know, what you see in all of these books about, you know, I, I was recently reading um, a summary of a book where a guy interviewed, I think a thousand people on their deathbeds asking what their number one regret was. It was consistent. They worked too hard. They wish they spent more times with their friends and family. I mean, it, it just, it makes so much sense because that's all there is really, you know, just the, the relationship. And that's actually why I reached out to you, Paul, because, you know, I consider you a friend and I just wanted to reach out to you and just let you know that I was there for you if you needed anything, you know, and, um, you know, and, I, and I'll do that with all my friends and family, particularly in this, the middle of this crazy pandemic. Sure. And um, so obviously you brought me to tears that day. Uh, and you had the best intent. And obviously I love this, you know, family, friends, and the experiences we share with them, really the only thing that matter in life. Um, but don't get it twisted. You only offered up your, your willingness to help me after you asked me for something. (laughs) Uh, So let's transition to that because as a, a young salesman, uh, selling the grill or, or working the grill, selling chips, candy bars, and soda, uh, and specifically everybody prior to you just giving away all of their profits because they just wanted to kick it with folks. What advice would you give a speaker like my or like me 
what advice would you give me to individuals that you that you really hold near and dear to your heart that reach out and say, I want you to do something for free for me? <laughs> That's a, I don't know who would ask you to do anything for free. <laughs> uh, you know what? I say that tongue in cheek. Obviously, I'm joking with you, Alistair, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about your referenced uh, you referenced, and I referenced, obviously, conferences and speakers, and you reading a lot, obviously. And you talked about the tenets of my book that connected with you. One of the things that I struggle with as a speaker, and specifically as an individual that wants to improve myself and wants to find information to help close opportunity gaps, is that when I read authors or uh, watch speakers that are specifically in a similar space to me, I feel like we're all saying the same thing. And so whenever you say something very nice to me, like, you know, this, the, the woe is me or the victim versus victor, it really resonated with me because that's how you've always lived your life. To me, that's such a basic principle. To me, that's, that's, that's so common sense oriented that I take it for granted at times. And I feel as though I'm not necessarily saying things that, that could potentially help others. Um, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because you referenced a conference that you went to some time ago. Uh, where you did a lot of introspection. And uh, in the, these introspective moments, you were supposed to raise your hand all of a sudden and say, I get it. I had this epiphany moment. And nearly everybody did but you. Um, can you walk us through that experience and talk to us a little bit about why you think, um, first of all, uh, from a content perspective, we're not really all saying that much of a different thing in terms of development? Why does some resonate with people and some doesn't? That's a great question. So for, for me, I, you know, I, I'm so, I, I read pretty much anything, I, everything I could get my hands on in terms of performance, like how to improve efficiency, um, you know, all, all of these different areas of life improvement. I, I, I'll, I'm voracious in. So I'll, Frequently go to seminars or go to education programs that will focus on that. And so for me, every what I I'm I'm so not uh, an expert in any of these things, but I'm so well read that I think my breadth of these courses is so wide that a lot of times things will sound similar or re repeat to things that I've heard before. So because of that, my my goal now is. Uh, is to go to a seminar or read a book. Well, I'll just try to pull out one, a single thought that's interesting that I could, I could dwell on, I could think about, I could ruminate on. Um, and, and, that, and that would make it a great experience for me. So, and I use that even in networking meetings. Like, you know, you probably are so popular. You've met so many people. But when you go to networking events, like I think the, the, the trend is to go out and try to meet as many people as possible, try to collect as many business cards, right? Or try to get your business card to as many people as possible. Where I go to a networking event, I just try to connect with one person, mm. just one. And I try to make one connection that, you know, that I can, that I can take away from because I feel that one deep connection is better than a thousand superficial ones. Agreed. Um, so, so that, that's the way that I approach, um, my, my seminars and my books. Um, and so I think, well, to answer your question, um, a lot of what people say and speakers do may be obvious, but it's the way that they say it. Mm-hmm. So it hits people a little bit differently because maybe they say it in a different voice or they connect a different connect in a different regard. Now you 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 call it a victim or a it's a two V right? Yep, yep. 
well, what's the what's the tag phrase? It's victim or victim or victor. Yeah, victim or victor. That I've never heard before. Like that is a really interesting way of putting it, right? So that you can it, well, it can be memorable. Like so, so right there, I just you know I I sort of fault myself for not remembering it, but I did remember that it was two Vs. Victim. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's that makes it memorable, you know. And that um, and and it's just you know as a speaker, you're you're, you're charged with sometimes getting fundamental ideas and being able to get it to people. And that, you know, that's your gift. Uh, what a shameless plug you just threw in there too. Fundamental nailed it. Uh, Hey, Alistair, you know, one thing that I haven't done a great job of doing on this podcast that I have committed to doing moving forward is uh, I want to leave folks with something tactical, something real that they could take from our one hour of time together and potentially apply to help improve their quality of life, either at home or at work. As we kind of revisit your skill set, and uh, specifically, it is we talk about your ability to, to make money um, or, or to be successful uh, financially, but at the root of it, I think it, it really boils, it boils down to your intelligence and presence of mind but also your ability to, uh, to maintain and create memorable interactions with others. So if you had to think about um, a, an entrepreneur, somebody that's starting out, somebody that wants to, wants to find a way to be their own boss or to, to stop with the rat race and, and be in a little more control of their life, based on your experience and some of the things that you've got to do, uh, live and successes that you've created for yourself, what advice might you give somebody that's trying to figure their way out? That's a great question. I've got so many lessons that I could go to, but I'll say this, Paul, um, and this I'll bring back into fundamentalism and what you're doing. A TED talk that I gave um, many five, six years ago, um, where I I didn't have the, the idea synthesized, but I've now synthesized the idea. Uh, but it's called, um, and I'm going to call it "Learn, Earn, Return." So they they rhyme, right? Before I, I it was on the TED talk was "Learn, Earn, Give Back." <laughs> It's, it sounds so clunky, but now I got it. Sort of like the victim or victor. I got it. It's learn, earn, return. So basically, um, so the first company that you start, I found in my experience, the first company you start, you have no idea what you're doing. Like you have no idea how to generate a revenue model, no idea how to get your, the word out, no idea how to do PR, no idea how to get advertising for free. So you learn the most. You're, you're learning about the technology, you're learning about you're not learning about your business, but you are learning about your business, but you're also learning about business. Mm. So the first step is you're going to learn. Then the second company you start, you it's return, uh, learn, earn. You're going to make more money than you've ever made. You're going to figure out what you what mistakes you made in the first company. You're going to figure out how to do advertising on, on the cheap. You're going to learn how to build revenue models. Most importantly, you're going to learn how to pivot against old bad business models to better business models, and then you're going to make a god sum of money. But then after you realize that you've made this money, you're going to realize money doesn't change you. Money doesn't change people. If you're, so I have a joke that starts with, uh, what do you call an asshole with money? Great question. A rich asshole, right? <laughs> like if, you're an asshole, if you're an asshole with money before you have money, you're going to be an asshole when you have money. Sure. Before you have money, you say, oh, I'm only going to make, make my first million before then I'm going to ask that girl out. It's not going to happen. If you're not asking the girl out now, it's not going to happen when you're going to make a million bucks. People right. think it's going to change you. It doesn't. Mm. It just augments your current characteristics. Mm. So what changes people 
um, is people. People change people, right? So then that's when you're going to realize what Bill Gates and what Warren Buffett and, you know, and, and, um, you know, the two richest men in our, in our culture, what do they do? They, they, one runs Microsoft, one runs Berkshire Hathaway. When you see them at their, at their annual report, they speak monotone, like Berkshire Hathaway's holdings in United Airlines. We've decided to sell 25% stake. You know, they'll speak monotone. But then when you hear Warren Buffett on CNN talk about how he's donating $50 billion to the Melinda Gates Foundation, and when you hear Bill Gates talk about Microsoft, he sounds like a robot. When you talk, when you hear him on TED talking about the eradication of malaria, he suddenly is like a 15-year-old kid. They get it. Money is not changing them. But with the money, with the, what they can do with the money, that's when they're helping people, that's, they get it because they have the money. So if, if I could say to just, to a new and budding entrepreneur, to do what you're doing, Paul, that's how I'm bringing back to fundamentalism because your business is about helping people. You've jumped over the learn and the earn. You're just going right to the return. Mm-hmm. So if, if a young entrepreneur can just jump over the lessons that I've spent two or three decades to do, I would say focus on a business that helps people. Try to figure out how your business can maximize helping people. The money will come and, and the, the learning will come. So you just do that. Like If you're going to learn about something, learn about something while doing something meaningful. Because Meaning. making money... You know, learning about business and making money is not going to really be that meaningful. But if you're helping other people doing it, it's it's that's going to make all the difference in the world. Well, Alistair, as we start to wrap up, uh, first of all, your thoughtful words are not lost upon me, so I greatly appreciate it. Uh, you've obviously done a little bit of research. I love this concept of learn, earn, and return. That might be the podcast episode title. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> I, I love it a lot better than learn, earn, and give back. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but you know what's interesting about that is not news to you. You just referenced it, the pandemic, right? Um, so, you know, I, I've been learning a ton through this entrepreneurial journey. And uh, the return for me and the return for uh, others uh, of this fundamentalism principle has, has really changed my life, just made me uh, more joyous. Uh, it's given me the ability to have more fun and, and be more fulfilled, especially with my family. Um, that said... Through the midst of this pandemic, we're not earning much because there's not, you know, there's not live events. So I've been doing webinars and whatnot. But the interesting thing, just to kind of circle back and kind of reiterate what you said, never once, you know, you called me and you you just, you know, offered up some tremendous help. Never once have we worried about money through any of this um, because I'm fulfilled, because I feel good. Now, there'll be a day where I'm like, oh, crap, I got to put money on the table, potentially. Um, but I'm not worried about that because to your point, uh, everything has happened in our life uh, the way that it should have been, uh, whether it's great or, or whether it's terrible. I learned something as a result. And gosh, damn, it feels so good to do something that you love. And that for me is fundamentalism. So thank you for your kind words. Alistair, if somebody uh, has been intrigued enough by your voice that they want to learn more, uh, I know that we have Green Soul Shoes. Um, and that's greensoulshoes.com uh, spelled. Yeah, that site is down right now, though, Paul. Okay, Just, fair enough. Where, where, where would we go to learn more about you, my friend? Uh, you could you could find me on Facebook under Alistair Ung. You could also find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Um, yeah, I think I, I think my pig has a, has an Instagram page. <laughs> Basically, Alistair doesn't want to be found, uh, but 
I'm going to tag him. Um, I- I'll leave. I'll leave everybody as the Funimism podcast listeners with this uh, before we say goodbye to our our friend Alistair. Uh, Alistair uh, did uh, used to own a condo in New York uh, or New Jersey, uh, someplace. Was it New York? New Jersey. It was New York City, right? New York City. Beautiful. I know our friend Bob Herrera had been there before. You gave it all up to move to the country. Now you live on a farm. And uh, we talked. And just a couple of days later, I received the most massive eggs in the mail. Uh, <laughs> you sent me goose eggs. which That's right. <laughs> we, uh, I have to tell you, we made omelets the other morning and they were phenomenal. They were absolutely delicious. So thank you, Alistair, for the gift. Did you eat both of them, Paul? I did. Yeah, heck yeah. I ate both you of them. Use one omelet for two in, goose eggs? In one setting. Dude, look at this. You see this? This is. <laughs> no, the, so to your point, the, the yolk is considerably uh, bigger. The yolk, of course, has all the flavor in an egg. So I was on cloud nine. Uh, Melissa did not dabble. She didn't try it. Uh, she's a little apprehensive. Uh, but I said it tastes just like a normal egg, only even more delicious. So and she still didn't try it. No, nope, she did not. I'm I'm sending her a goose egg. Okay. <laughs> uh, she's gonna give me a goose egg for talking mess on this podcast, daughter. Uh, but nevertheless, hey, Alistair, I just want to say thank you, man. It, it, it says a lot about you that you took time out of your busy day. Um, you're an inspiration to a lot of people, not just your kidnapping story, but your ability to give up things like money and, uh, and security to try something new. Now you're living on a freaking farm. You're living fundamism. And that's exactly why I wanted to have you as a guest. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, sir. Thank you, Paul. Keep up the great work. I love your podcast, by the way. Well, listen, uh, I'd love to have you back on as we uh, start to progress in the fundamentalism strategy moving forward because we got lots of things that we want to accomplish. So to the Fundamism Podcast listener, we greatly appreciate your support. We couldn't be whatever the hell we are without you. So go out, have some fun today, create some fun in the lives of others until we see you on the flip side. Deuces! Deuces!